Hello and welcome to Series 6 of the Hay Festival podcast, where we'll be sharing highlights from recent festival events intertwined with revelatory offstage conversations with some of the world's greatest writers and thinkers on their private passions and influences. First up is acclaimed writer-illustrator and Waterstones Children's Laureate, Cressida Cowell, who joined us at Hay Festival in Wales this May to discuss her best-selling The Wizards of Wants and How to Train Your Dragon book series. We'll start with a short extract from her on-stage event talking about her new book, Which Way to Anywhere, before you hear our backstage conversation. My new book, Which Way to Anywhere, which is all about maps. Yeah. And Which Way to Anywhere... It began about, I'm going to have to, to read this a little bit because I've never really spoken about which way to anywhere before, so you have to forgive me. It, it began about 25 years ago, this story, and before I'd even started writing How to Train Your Dragon. And I wrote the first words then, um, and it's been living and growing with me all that time, but this is a big story, set not in just one world, but many, not just about one person, but an entire family, and it needed time to develop, yeah? But you see, I think that stories have a life of their own. They find you just as much as you find them. For 25 years, they lay quiet in your shed until the story flies up like a bird finding you at just the right moment. And this story found me at a very difficult time, just after my father died and at the start of the pandemic. And that's when it came to life, finding me. And it felt suddenly the right time to be writing a book about some children searching for their lost father, an entire family trying to rebuild itself. Um, So, yes. Okay. So, it started with a really simple idea. What if, as a child, I used to, who does this, draw maps of imaginary worlds? Does anybody do that at this out here? Yes, quite a few of you. Yeah. What if those worlds were real? Yeah. What if they were real? I started doing some research on this. What if they were real? Really, scientists now think there is life on other planets. They're just so far away, we can't reach it really interesting. I did lots of research about evolution. How fascinating. Apparently, if they think there is life on other planets, and if there is life on planets, it won't be necessarily so different from us. Because evolution is very interesting. Yeah? So think, species that evolve are apparently not so very different. Crabs can evolve completely independently. I thought, how fascinating. Go on the internet, kids. Research is fascinating. Anyway, So, what if those imaginary worlds were real? And what if there was a kid, like me, yeah, um, who has the gift of showing the crossing points between between the worlds in a sort of alternative atlas, yeah? So, this is the maps. That's K2, by the way. And these are the maps that he's drawing. That's the forests of the Aborogast and no man's land. And he's drawing a cross on, on, on um, on on the imaginary worlds. And you see a piece of paper has two sides. Imagine you're drawing your imaginary place here. And on the other side, you draw a place you know well. Your house, for example. The airing cupboard in your house. So you draw across there and across there. And it shows the crossing points between the worlds. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be a very desirable gift, wouldn't it? It would say, save so much time and money on safe space travel, wouldn't it? 
So people in the universal government are going to really going to be want to get hold of the kid who has that extraordinary gift because then you can cut through, you see, into the other world. So these are, are two of the heroes. Yes, I said um, it's not a story about a kid who has the Atlas gift, really. It's a story about the whole family. Um, and it takes place not way back in Viking times, but in the, in the Bronze Ages, but right here, right now. K2 and Isabeau de Averdo Hero are twins from a magical family who are keeping their magic secret. This is also about magic, because I love magic. I would secretly love to have a magic bar myself, not very secretly. Um, uh, their parents have divorced and their father has disappeared and now their mother has married the father of Theo and Mabel Smith and the two sets of children are really not happy about it. The only thing the children can agree on is their baby sister, Anipek. But I know this is the first time I've got to write a baby. I love the baby. Um, but when Anipek is stolen and taken into an alternative world, the two sets of children are going to have to work together to rescue her. Um, this is a story about family, and this is the alternative world. Scary. Um, and creativity and what being a hero really means. There are worlds with 600 moons and burning rivers and jungles alive with plants that hunt by the smell of fear. That's a real snake, by the way. Um, there's this really terrifying robot Oh, there's this terrifying robot assassin, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> who is trying chasing the children. I'm so sorry about that uh, when I'm trying to scare you. I really am trying to scare you. And there's this cute little malfunctioning robot called Puck. And, oh, he's lovely. I wish I had time to introduce you to all these people. And a magical, uh, enchanted toothbrushes, concerned toothbrush family, because... Toothbrushes are protective, aren't they? They've been made to look after teeth, you know, so they're jolly concerned. Um, and a magical enchanted hairdryer. And, yeah, this really cool teenage bounty hunter called Horizabelle, who we don't know whose side she's on. And I really wish I was her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, hold your breath. We're going in. Yeah. So that's which way to anywhere, yeah? To listen or watch the full event from Cressida Cowell, you can sign up to our Hay Player at hayfestival.org forward slash hayplayer. Now, after a two-hour book signing, I met up with Cressida backstage to discuss some of the key influences behind her writing, starting with The Natural World. Well, a lot of you know, reading, I mean, the obvious ones for what I've ended up doing. Um, so a lot of reading and writing. I spent a lot of time on this uninhabited island off the west coast of Scotland, like the whole summer with no television and nowhere. So, um, so reading, so, you know, obviously books, um, no television for a month, but also I was in charge of the entertainment section because I was the eldest kid. So I was often doing, you know, organising plays and reading aloud to them and all of that kind of thing was a big interest. And, and drawing as well, drawing, you know, and I remember putting on plays and I'd make the sets, or I'd make the designs and I'd, you know, assign all the roles and, and it's sort of what I'm doing now, isn't it? And I, I remember reading aloud to them one book, The Ogre Downstairs, and I'd loved that book. I was about nine and... As I read it, they said, 
oh, one more chapter. And I made them laugh. I felt like I'd made them laugh. Of course, of course, it was the writer doing it. But that was, it was such a feeling of power. But <laughs> 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 I made them laugh and begged them, they begged me to have another chapter. And I think that's what's made me want to do what I'm doing now. I'm, that's what I'm still doing. I'm still trying to get kids excited about books like I am. Um, yeah. And so there was that. But there are other things that I love doing. If you say to me now what I love doing, um, I, mean, I love drawing and painting and that's all my, in my work, but I, 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 I love walks, I love nature, I love gardening, I love making things grow, I love seeing things grow. I love just being a bit like Pooh Bear, actually, just <laughs> being in the garden or walking or being in the nature, you know. Um, or a bit like Lord Emsworth in, <laughs> in Blandings, who just spends hours looking at his pig. You know, I like that, just pottering about. Did you always feel that kind of love for nature? Because I know you spent quite a lot of time with your family on an island. Was that always something you loved as a child? Because I remember feeling quite bored by nature a lot of the time as a child, <laughs> growing to love it now. But <laughs> Oh, yes, gardening possibly is something that I wasn't into as a kid, but... I mean, I didn't have much choice, really, in the sense that we were dropped off. You know, my dad was really into bird watching. That's why we were there. His job was in London. Um, that's where his job was. But he was chairman of the RSPB, you know, looking after birds. And then he was also chairman of Kew Gardens after he retired. So he was passionate about the environment. So every year from when I was a baby, we'd be dropped off on this uninhabited island, the west coast of Scotland, an island so small that when you stand on the top of you, you can see sea all around you and nothing on the island, no houses, no Tesco's, uh, no mobile phones, no way of contacting the outside world if something went wrong. When I was a baby, no houses, no, nothing, camping. Parents, crazy, yeah? Incredible that that isn't... For a kid, that kind of nature. And then when we were spending the whole summer, my dad got a boat so um, we could go out to sea to catch fish to, to eat and we were spending the whole summer there, this uninhabited island. So I think this was nature at its pretty much its most exciting. Yeah. <laughs> because this isn't gardening. This was this is going out to sea and in storms because my dad, who is stoic the boss, that Viking he is, I mean this very thinly disguised, my dad. Um, you know, he would take us out in storms and... But then he also... He knew about nature. That was the other thing. He knew... He could tell you stories. He could point to that bird. He knew a story about that hill and how, you know, it, it, you know there was a story that it had turned into a mountainside. That was a Viking story. A dragon that had turned into a mountainside. He told me those stories. He, he made the nature nature alive. So how could I not connect to, to it by the way he described it? Did you spend a lot of time fictionalising? Because I can see the link almost between birds and dragons. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. Exactly. <laughs> did he encourage that or was he quite... Did he want you to know the facts and not daydream so much about it? That's so interesting. He didn't, but he did tell me, I just told you him telling me the stories. He did know the stories from Roundabout. I mean, he, he was, he was probably more interested in facts. He wasn't a, you know, he's a businessman. But um, he is the one who inspired me to connect to it. He, 
I mean, so for instance, when I, I did turn the birds into dragons, um, but one of the things I did was that they weren't just any old dragons and they weren't just storybook dragons. They were, because no bird was ever just a bird, it was a greater spotted orc, you know, very rare for these parts, you know. He knew exactly, so I made the dragons different species and I imagined them as if they were um, an evolution, like dinosaurs and like... Because if a kid is the child of an environmentalist, which my dad essentially was, the details are important. So he didn't mean to inspire my <laughs> story-making. I don't think he meant to, but he did. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Did you, did you collect anything? We were sort of obsessive about he, shells or he, he was a collector. He collected okay. in the days before this was not what you were supposed to do. And he was really embarrassed when he became the chairman of the RSPB. He collected birds' eggs. So as a kid, he used to go out and um, climb trees and collect different birds' eggs. And, and, um, and because, because it was the 1970s, you know, the way that I was brought up, we were just allowed to do things like that. I didn't collect birds' eggs, but I did climb trees and go out in boats completely unsupervised without life jackets and climbed cliffs looking for dragons completely unsupervised. Unsupervised. And that, that unsupervised and really dangerous <laughs> access to nature feels its way into the books without me even trying. You know, how could it not? And that, I suppose that spirit of adventure and genuine danger, genuine danger, feeds its way into the books without you. I remember one time when my dad, we were out in a, in a bit of a storm. This often happened. He was really bad in the boat. And um, he, uh, we were being blown. His engine went and the storm was bad. And we were being, you know, next stop America. We were being blown out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my mum was getting pretty cross, as you would, you know, three young children. Flipping dangerous, flipping dangerous. My dad, <laughs> he cast out an anchor, which, and he did it several times. He was always very Captain Mannering-ish in a boat, even though he, <laughs> he, was, he was very, I mean, I know what I'm doing. He threw out the anchor and he managed eventually to catch on to the boy of a lobster pot that he had put too deep. And so, you know, the sea had just come up over it. The luck of my goodness, that man was lucky. (laughs) But the anchor caught the lobster pot and so we weren't, it gave him time to work in the engine so we weren't blown out into the proper storm. Okay. Genuine danger. Mm -hmm. And that, that danger, that excitement, I'm, all, I'm talking all about my dad. It's interesting, <laughs> it's all about my lovely dad. That danger, that excitement, that person who, yeah, see how it inspired me. When he died three years ago, we discovered there was no GPS on the boat. <laughs> because my dad thought... It would spoil the wilderness experience. Wow. (laughs) Different kind of human being to me. Yeah. That's the kind of human being who goes out and crosses, you know, like Richard Branson, crosses, you know, oceans in an air balloon. 
just because they that spirit of adventure that the Vikings just had. They had to have that. Going out, you know, exploring and wanting wanting to, to recreate, you know. And, and I, try, I channel that. I'm not that. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't know that at the time. But I sensed it, you know. <laughs> you had to sense it, yeah, with my dad. Um, and, and I can remember one time when, when he was trying to look and see whether a buzzer's nest, this was just me and my dad, and he was trying to see whether a buzzer's nest was a buzzer's nest or a sea eagle's nest. And this involved bending over a cliff with me hanging onto his ankles. And I remember clearly thinking, oh my goodness, how am I related to this person? Yeah. I'm not that person, you see. So I'm, <laughs> I'm the kind of person thinking, this is crazy. How old were you then? I was nine. And, and, nine. On, the, I'm, and on the island with my dad <laughs> on my own, which didn't happen very often. Yeah. Um, you know, because I was normally, yeah. Um, anyway, but yes, but... I'm not that kind of person, but I, I can, I do know I was lucky to have that childhood and have that spirit of wildness and adventure and exploring. And I think children want that and need that and they feel that. And it's hardwired in human beings to explore. And it's kind of sad that we've run out of spaces to explore and the wild places. And I put people still in touch with that. And that's why adults love my books as well. Because we sense we've lost something, that, you know, the urge to explore. And that actually comes into my new series, which isn't out yet, called Which Way to Anywhere, which is about exploring other worlds. It's actually it's about you know, exploring other worlds and possibility of space and could we get there and all that kind of thing. It's because it's very human to want to explore. Um, and all of these things just come into my books without, without them meaning to. Another strong interest which has had an influence on Cressida's work is Shakespeare. I asked her to tell me more about her love for the great bard. Actually, funnily enough, we do know rather more about him than we knew. Um, we know about a lot of his contemporaries. We know, we know quite a lot about but of course we don't. You know, there's a, and I'm always interested in what we don't know. And that's always a source of fascination for me. That's why I'm attracted to subjects like the Vikings, where... You know, we know quite, quite a lot, even better, the Bronze Ages. Wizards once were set in the Bronze Ages, where we really have so little written record. And with my new series, Which Way to Anywhere, really it's, we don't know, this is other planet. this is other worlds. This is other planets that we haven't visited, but scientifically, they think life must exist on other planets. Anyway, so we really don't know about that. That's fascinating, what we don't know. That's one. One of the reasons I've drawn to Shakespeare, he's also... The greatest poet that ever lived. Um, so I am fascinated by what we don't know about him, and what, and therefore we tend to, you know, make make up what whatever whatever we want to about him. And we, what I'm interested by is he's the kind of person who you really can do that with, because his his works are are very open ended. He tends to to leave questions. He, he he gets you asking questions, and you don't really know what the answers are. So, for instance, um, the Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, really interesting play. Whose side is Shakespeare on? Very fascinating. Because you could argue either way. 
he doesn't make it explicit and he frames it in a very strange way. So the shrew is tamed in the course of the play. That's presented as sort of a good thing. He, the beginning, when, when it's very disturbing, when the drunken guy at the beginning, he sort of brainwashed the drunken guy at the beginning. This is framed by this. And there's a very disturbing speech that the, sh the shrew, so Katerina makes, where you realise, in response to Petruchio, who's been using her name, Kate, 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 he's sort of taken over her identity. Strange things are going on in that play. Extraordinary things for a writer of that age. You know, writing in that time. Very ambiguous, happy with dealing with ambiguity. So I'm really interested in him as a writer, because he's all about ambiguity and people... I'm fascinated by the fact that people just think he couldn't have possibly written those plays, you know, because he would... No, but they do. Yes. No, you know, because he was not posh enough, not educated enough, not... People bring all these preconceptions to what... And because he was a genius, because he used, you know, so many more words. He made up more words. I can't remember how many more words he wrote, but also different types. He made up words and he used... His language was much... But human beings sort of think... He therefore couldn't, because he was so out of the ballpark, it couldn't have been just him. Not, but I looked at it and think, Bradman, that cricketer, his cricketing record is way high. Anyway, I am a bit obsessed with Shakespeare. You see, hyper-focused. I could go on, I could go on about Shakespeare for a very long time because he's fascinating and such a magnificent poet. What a wonderful, interesting poet. He did this re really interesting thing where they um, put somewhere, one of these universities, where they put um, electrodes onto people's heads to try and see what happened in the, their minds when they listened to Shakespeare because he used his language in a really interesting way. And what they discovered, he often uses a noun instead of a verb or, you know, and what they discovered was that new neural pathways were being created in the brain in order to make sense of the language. Isn't that fascinating? That that's what language can do. And he made up words and it's just an astonishing writer. Mm, that's amazing. I know. You do like it. I do like it. <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> I keep on. Again, a lot of these things, it's interesting you ask these questions about your influences because a lot of these things you write about without thinking about it particularly. And you just suddenly discover, oh my goodness, I've written, you know, all of these characters seem to have Shakespearean names. In my new book, there's a little robot called Puck. You know, in my last one, there was... Ariel, um, you know, one of the sprites. There. You don't mean to, but all the things that you're interested in sort of find their way into it. It is. It's, it's almost, I sort of think it's a, almost like a waking dream. So your brain trying to process things. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, it's, it's that idea of the interest that we have that we don't think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you do research. With some of your work, endless research, um, and actually the stuff that you're absorbing outside of that—that yeah. maybe you don't think is useful 
uh, a bit like general studies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, which is so useful and important. Um, <laughs> that yeah. does end up, end up back in these places. Yeah. Um, do you ever, have you ever felt like that reading any of your stuff back that you sort of see a glimmer of, oh, that was, that was that thing and I didn't realise I was using that or... The entire time. <laughs> <laughs> the entire time. Because I didn't, I didn't set out to write Hand to Trail Your Dragon thinking, I'm going to write about my relationship with my father. I didn't set out to think, thinking I'm going to... But I didn't even know that that's what I was doing. So I didn't even know that's what I was doing. Hand to Trail Your Dragon was all about being a parent. I'd just had a baby. And it was me trying to work out what kind of a parent I wanted to be. And turned out I didn't want to be a parent, although I admired them terrifically. I did not want to be a parent like my own parents. But that was all a sort of, I didn't realise that that's what I was doing at the time. You know, I've got more because I've had to give talks and think about it. <laughs> I realise much more now what I'm doing. One of the reasons I think my books have been very popular is I'm doing that. I'm often working things out. I don't necessarily know all the answers along the way. Um, so, um, I will give you a good example. So, How to Train Your Dragon was really about being a parent and working that out. In Wizards of Once, which is the second book series, I started out with this thing, which was a really grabby hook, I thought, for um, who is the narrator of this story. I said, this story is being narrated by a character, but you don't know who it is. A lot of fun for the kids to guess who is the narrator of this story. And <laughs> and all of the kids were guessing it was a different character. And, and suddenly in the middle of book two, I thought, hang on a second. I'd already decided the narrator. The narrator of this story is a bloke. <laughs> Why am I making the narrator of the story? And that? Why am I doing that? I thought that's really interesting. And I hadn't really realised, I thought, no, I'm going to make... So I invented this whole character who was a... I was asking, I was asking who, is, who am I? I was asking myself that question. Who am I? That was why I was asking the question. So I, I invented this entirely new character who's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> who is this wizard, female wizard, really, really cool, who inherited the story and who taught the characters and who... Became a much better parent, sorry, a much better parent to the characters than they. Anyway, <laughs> I thought I can't leave Wish and Zar with these very imperfect parents. Sometimes you have to put things. You have to be honest about about um, about the the problems that you're facing sometimes in life. You know, like how to be a parent. Who know, you know, it's difficult you know, to know how to be a parent. And, and if you're honest about looking up, you know, Hiccup, Stoic, it was about having this wonderful father who I idolised, but wasn't a bit like. And putting that relationship out there, you, you know, connects you to other people who feel the same thing. Thank you for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. We'll be back next Friday with mathematician extraordinaire Marcus de Sotoy talking prime numbers, football and creativity. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends or give us a rating wherever you're listening. This podcast was hosted by me, Poppy Evans. I will see you same time, same place next Friday. Hold up. 